0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. I'm your host, Jennifer George, and I'm joining you today with Dr. David Weil. David served as the director of several transplant programs for 20 years, most notably as the director of the Center for Advanced Lung Disease and Lung and Heart Lung Transplant Program at the Stanford University Medical Center. In 2016, after serving at Stanford for 11 years, David did the unthinkable and walked away from his field while at the top of his field. David was burned out from the daily battles of being a doctor, such as witnessing the patients who couldn't be treated because of finances with transplantation. David has since written a riveting memoir called Exhale, Hope, Healing, and a Life in Transplant, and this offers readers an inside look at the immense psychological pressures that medical professionals face on the job. David is now currently the principal of the Weill Consulting Group, which focuses on improving the delivery of pulmonary ICU in transplant care. In this episode, David and I chat about his story, what led him into medicine, what he loved most about medicine, and why he had to walk away, and what's next for him, and how he's continuing to protect himself against burnout as he moves onward with his career. David further shares with us some tips and recommendations to how you can protect yourself against burnout in your professional practice while keeping you in the practice of taking care of patients. So grab your drink of choice, join us. You don't wanna miss this episode. Hi, David, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks so much for being here. I've been looking forward to this conversation I feel like we have some parallels. Uh, You and I have been through transplantation. Uh, My dad was a recipient uh, back in 2007 of a liver transplant. And I believe your dad also received a transplant as well at one point. But yeah, I'm looking forward to learning more about you. Yeah, and um, kind of about the whole process of being on both sides, personally and professionally, and kind of how we can help healthcare providers navigate through life and the profession of healthcare as well to be there for our patients. So,
1: right. welcome. Yeah, thank you again for having me.
0: Yeah. So, tell me a little bit about yourself. What brought you to medicine?
1: Well, I grew up in a medical family. Uh, so, I grew up in New Orleans. My dad uh, was a physician, he was the chief of pulmonary medicine at Tulane for a long time. And he um, exposed me to it from an early age. I used to do rounds with him on the weekends when I was a little boy, oh. tried to learn how to read x rays. <laughs> And my mom was a nurse, and so I was around her quite a bit. I was the kind of kid that worked in hospitals in high school as an orderly and continued that on through college and then, of course, med school. So I was around medicine my whole life. I never really wavered in in wanting to be a doctor.
0: Wow. And you worked in lung transplantation, or still I, I did. do. Yeah. I
1: did. Yeah. My whole career, really, has been in transplantation, which has been uh, quite a ride.
0: Yeah, I kind of read that basically from the onset of of your medical school journey, you ended up in transplantation.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it, it was like a lot of things in life. It was kind of happenstance. I was at the right place at the right time yeah. and uh, it found me.
0: I love that. I love that. So tell me what it was like for yourself to be kind of on the other side at first when uh, maybe when your dad was the recipient of a transplant.
1: It really changed everything for me. I, I I kind of said there were two big things in my life that changed the way I practice medicine. One was having my my own kids. Uh, it made me look at things differently, uh, as it does for a lot of people. And then when my father got a transplant, I knew even better what it was like to be on the other side. I think I'd only been practicing as a full-fledged transplant doctor for about five years when he got transplanted. But it became apparent to me about the emotional ups and downs of that whole process. Even though my father knew a lot about medicine, he knew nothing about transplant. And so he was counting on me to interpret uh, what was going on. So it was the evaluation process, the waiting period, the post-operative care and beyond that I I really saw it through a patient's eyes for the first time. And it was was really eye-opening.
0: Wow. So you said you were just kind of entry level at that point even. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. I was early in the field. He got transplanted in two thousand and one and I was finished my training in nineteen ninety-six. So I, oh. I hadn't been been at it terribly long.
0: Yeah. Wow. So when did you become director at Stanford University? I be, so. Uh
1: that was in two thousand and five. And so oh. um I um had a few shorter stops along the way, had run a couple of smaller transplant programs. And then was asked to come out and um, rehabilitate a, an old program that had fallen on some tough times, okay. and um, eagerly did that. Uh, moved out in 2005 and stayed there uh, for uh, 11 years.
0: Wow! And then you were the. When did you leave Stanford?
1: 2016, I left.
0: Wow! So you, I mean, you were quite still, like within your first 10 years into the profession. Yeah. Yep. Those are some big leaps in, in a small I would say in yeah. a small period of time to see yeah, such a th- big scope.
1: Yeah, things happened uh things happened <laughs> rapidly for me, but I uh I ended up being on the front lines of transplant care for about twenty years and um you know have now stepped away and onto different things now. So
0: Yeah, I'm such a obviously a huge advocate for organ transplantation, Mm -hmm. because, you know, it gave my dad 10 extra years uh, with us. And, you know, it was complicated medically for him, his journey wasn't so smooth, he had two liver transplants, uh, Mm -hmm. because the first one didn't didn't work out. But either way, we still we still got the extra time with him and him with us. So when you were working on, you know, at Stanford, and you were kind of directing the whole program in a way you weren't as much involved. At the, on the front line level, um, you are more overseeing i
1: was I was both really. Okay. so we had a we had a team of fifty five people, and it was a multidisciplinary team, including surgeons and nurses and nurse practitioners and infectious disease doctors and you name it, nutritionists. Yeah. And so I was in charge of making sure all those uh folks rode rode in the same direction and uh, but also very much practicing you know medicine, very much seeing patients and in fact, I saw patients every day, which was um by far the most gratifying part of the job, especially when you compare it to management
0: right exactly uh,
1: there was it, it, it it's the part that I miss the most. I think about it almost every day.
0: Oh, wow! So, what was it like for you being you know a healthcare professional and also a director and kind of doing both sides there? What was that experience like for you as a human being, witnessing people become so sick to the point where they're kind of on death's door waiting. A life saving
1: transplant or organ. Yeah, I mean, you know, because you've had this in your family, you know, this is the most vulnerable period of a person's life. You know, they're literally, it's a life and death situation. You know, we toss that term out a lot, but this is literally a life and death situation. So I saw people fight and Mm -hmm. fight really hard, and it made me uh, want to fight for them because I saw how hard they were trying to work to survive. And I think that that's the thing that got me out of bed every morning you know you really you want to do right by the patient group because they're so sick Mm -hmm. and uh, you know i think also the the valuable relationships that i was able to establish with family members of the people that we transplanted is something i'll carry with me i I still hear from a lot of them which Mm -hmm. is gratifying some of them you know who read my book and you know reached out to me and that that's really heartwarming
0: it's wonderful. My um, my dad's transplant surgeon came to my book signing actually okay. when I wrote about it a few years ago. So that was really cool. Nice. We still maintain contact um, as well. Nice. Yeah, it's awesome. It it really is life changing. Are there any? Because you said you had to fight, right? You had to fight for the individuals to to get the organ that they needed. What disqualifies someone, or what doesn't qualify someone to receive an organ?
1: Yeah, I think when we're looking for the best people best candidates for transplant, not the best people, they're all good people. But when we're looking for the people that have the highest degree of success, they usually have a lung problem, and the rest of them is in pretty good working order. They don't have any heart disease, or they're not overweight, and they're mm. in pretty good shape, no cancer. But it also, you know, and this, this became obvious during the course of my career, they needed to have a high degree of psychosocial support. Mm. And, you know, we really looked closely, and there was parts of our team, social workers and psychiatrists, that would evaluate the people that we wanted to transplant just to make sure that they could handle this very complex therapy. You know, and again, you've been through it as a family member. This is tough stuff. And um, I think it's... Not for everybody, you know, but for the patients that really want to dig in and work hard and take their medicines and see us probably more often than they want to. Yeah, I I think it's I think it's a really a a valuable way to extend life. It sounds like your dad got ten extra years, mine twelve, and I think you know that's 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 pretty remarkable.
0: I think so too. And uh, we would have not got it otherwise. And for him, the only thing was his liver at that time. Like it, there was no right. other comorbidities really going on, which was great. Did you ever experience any barriers for patients to receive the organs that they desperately needed that caused maybe, I don't want to say cause, but maybe resulted in someone, you know, unfortunately losing their life or.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, had to turn some patients down f- for two you know major reasons that was real- both of which were very very disappointing. One would be they didn't have a support system in place in other words, they lived alone they were alone
0: mm-hmm. they didn't
1: have you know family around them they didn't have a lot of friends to help them the the things that you know I take For granted, too often, Uh, they didn't really have that. And we can't transplant folks that don't have that support system in place. And then the, uh, the other thing, of course, you know, that is becoming increasingly problematic is the financing of it all. And, you know, insurance companies are, you know, dictating how we practice medicine. I don't think that's an overstatement. Exactly. <laughs> and, and and I think that what happens with regard to transplant is this is, a you know, a very expensive therapy, a seven-figure therapy for the first year, uh, let alone several years after. And insurance companies, you know, are becoming more and more willing, I think, to turn patients down for transplant if it doesn't neatly Fit into one of their boxes uh, for for a good candidate, mm-hmm. and that's for people who have insurance, right? And so for people that don't have insurance, and I and I saw too much of this, they're out of luck, mm-hmm. and I, and I and you know in a country like this, I I, I think that's uh, shameful.
0: Yeah, I mean you're you're in the U.S. obviously. I'm in Canada, and right. Ontario, Ontario specifically. So we we do have universal health care. Like my dad received yeah. his transplant under funding that way but you know we are still we are seeing more privatization i think um, at this point but uh yeah it's just hard to believe that someone might not qualify because of financial uh resources
1: right yeah yeah well we we, we've seen we've seen too much of that and you know it's uh you know probably beyond the scope of our conversation today but it's but it's it's concerning
0: Yeah. And I can imagine that would take a toll, right? On ones like for yourself and for other healthcare professionals on um, kind of a bit of a moral injury there in a way.
1: I I think you're right. And I don't think that's overstating it at all. I I think that you know, as healthcare workers, we just want to go out there and help people. And we we see the disconnect and being able to do that, whether it's for financial reasons or other reasons. And that does hurt us, you know, it, it, it hurts us to our core. And I think that is the moral injury that folks are talking about, especially after the pandemic. Yeah. And it's a real thing.
0: Yeah. So what led to you leaving and kind of going in more into consulting and I think
1: I, I think I think I had some of that moral injury. Uh, I think there there was you know not as tight an alignment uh, between what I wanted to do and what I could get done any longer. Mm-hmm. And I think also there was a degree of empathy depletion. You know, I we had transplanted people, and I'd been in the field for twenty years and mm-hmm. had helped do some really great things out there for patients, but then I had lost um, some people I cared about quite a bit, mm-hmm. and as I got older, I got more beaten down by the patients we lost than I did when I was younger, For for whatever reason, I guess that's common. I was able to shake it off a little bit better when I was younger. But then, you know, started having, you know, I had kids of my own and saw a lot of the young people we transplanted as my own daughters. And I had a harder and harder time shaking off those losses. And, you know, in transplant, those are going to happen. It's an imperfect therapy. But, you know, I was kind of seeking perfection and it wasn't lining up for me anymore. So what I wanted to do is figure out a way to take what I knew and try to be helpful, Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I know I know something about transplants, so these days I'm helping out transplant programs that are struggling in in some way. And so at the moment, I'm more a coach than quarterback, uh, <laughs> which is okay at this stage of the game. But I miss the daily patient interaction. That's special.
0: Do you get to still interact with patients in this role?
1: Not or is much. It more, yeah, it's Yeah. Not the yeah. providers yeah. or the yeah.
0: organization. Yeah.
1: That's right. I mean, not much. When I first left Stanford, I did a little bit of patient care at one of the local hospitals. And then the pandemic hit and their program, you know, kind of went away for a little while. And I'm doing uh, very little clinical work at this stage of the game.
0: But like you're you're a valuable resource, truly. And the way I see it is you know you're still having an impact right it might not be I, I a, I hope that so. direct I, impact I, yeah, but it yeah. is in a way through the providers I, touch i, yeah. I hope, so. I, hope I th- so I think so so what kind of things would you be helping with now for you know those those programs that are trying to you know get back on their feet or trying to thrive like you had to do years ago
1: yeah, transplant programs can struggle in a variety of ways, clinical, obviously, mm-hmm. um, but, they, but they have administrative issues, they have infrastructure problems, they can have financial problems of their own, they can have uh, resource allocation problems within the hospital. So what, what my consulting group tries to do is go in there and diagnose the problem, try to find out what's going on. And then make a series of recommendations. And we often end up sort of staying with the transplant program for years. Uh, I've had some of the folks that I work with, some of the programs I work with, I've been working with since I left Stanford in 2016. And, you know, I I, I think that that's valuable because I can be, especially to the younger people on the transplant team, I can be somebody they can call up and just, you know, run stuff by. Uh, And I think that, I think that, I hope it's good for them. It works well for me. Yeah,
0: (laughs) I was just going to ask that. I'm sure it works well for them to have that mentorship and support that you provide um, and your expertise. Um, So in terms of your own emotional pain that you were struggling with before in a way, or, you know, the over, the being consumed by empathy and burnout, it sounds like immoral injury, has that improved since you changed? And do you think it's the result of that? Or do you just think... There were other shifts too that you.
1: No, I, you know, I think it was time. I think it was time to go. I intuitively knew when I started doing transplant work in my early 30s, I was a young man. Yeah, that's what I, I mean. <laughs> um, I, I kind of thought it had a shelf life to it. I, I, I never really envisioned doing it till I was 65 and I would have a retirement party and get a gold watch and go on my way. <laughs> I just never saw it that way. I saw it more as something that I would go at pretty hard, which I did, mm-hmm. um, for a period of time and 20 years. Years felt about right. And then I thought I would open up a new chapter in my life. I I, I always had looked forward to that and had planned for that. Uh, And I didn't know how it was going to come or exactly when it was going to come, but I knew it was going to come.
0: Okay. So, in a way, you kind of knew this was kind of going to happen at some point. I did. Yeah, that you would make that change. So, tell me about your book, your riveting book, um, your memoir about Exhale Hope, Healing, and a Life in Transplant.
1: Yeah. When I left Stanford, I had a lot on my mind. And um, I I had taken a lot of notes in a journal about patient interactions that I had and about things that I felt while I was doing this kind of work and about my colleagues that I worked with on our team. And I decided that I would weave it together in a story so that people out there, whether they're in the medical field or not, could get a feel for what it's like to do this kind of job, You know, to show up every day and have a Waiting list of people in your mm-hmm. pocket and trying to find organs for them and trying to, to send them back to their life and, and on their way. And I've always liked reading about other people's experience that I know nothing about. And I thought maybe there are people out there that would like to read about what's it like to run a big transplant program and feel like what that emotional roller coaster feels like. Mm -hmm. and i tried to do it as honestly and as transparently as possible and showed me at my best and worst and tried to show people at their best and worst because that's life right i mean Mm -hmm. we don't we don't do everything perfectly all the time and i wanted to show that you know the doctors that are taking care of you are real people and they have you know real flaws and they have real attributes and that's what i tried to do with the book i When I sat down, my number one goal was to tell the story as honestly as I could.
0: Yeah, I really appreciated that throughout. It was just that inner dialogue where you would see kind of you'd have a thought and then you'd kind of snap out of it in a way and change your train of thought. But the fact that you felt all of it and shared that and I think your vulnerability through that was like really appreciated, at least by me and I'm sure by many, because a lot of people I think don't realize that, you know, we are human beings too and we're we're just as impacted by the work we do, you know, and the lives we help just as much as we're helping someone else. I
1: think like, you're right. And I appreciate you saying that.
0: Yeah. So to, what do you want readers to know or um what can they take away from your book if you had to pick like three things that you'd want them to really get.
1: You know, one of the things that I that I thought as I was writing the book, that in some ways it was a cautionary tale, you mm-hmm. know, to just to be a little careful. I, I tend to approach things at 110% and full speed ahead. And what I was trying to get across in the book is that that does work well until it doesn't. And I think what I was experiencing at the back half, not the back half, but the back part of my career was going too fast maybe a little bit of more moderation at the end, maybe expect a little bit less of myself and maybe expect a little bit less of my colleagues and temper those expectations. That probably would have helped me toward the end. Mm -hmm. And I think that the other important take home I wanted is how important when you're doing an intense job like the one I do and perhaps you do and some of your listeners do is to stay connected to one another. And I think what happens is, and I, this, this happened to me for sure, is it, you become isolated in your own thoughts and things are kind of bearing down on you and isolation sets in, whereas that's the exact opposite of what needs to happen. What needs to happen is you need to stay connected to your family, friends, colleagues, to your faith, to the extent that that's important to you. Mm-hmm. And I think that those are the messages that I wanted to get across in the book.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's beautiful. What tips now do you have for people to minimize their risk of burnout if they're working in healthcare, but they don't want to leave the profession? So they're they're doing the daily grind, right? They're in it. And it's a 24 seven operation, basically, if you had to go back yourself and do it. Like what would you have done differently? I guess
1: I would. I, I'm I'm certain that I w- one thing I would do differently is is talk more about what I was experiencing instead of scribbling it in a journal, which was nice. Which is great. I, I, yeah. yeah, I think that it, it probably would behoove all of us to talk with our colleagues about what what we're going through, and I think there's some reluctance still to do that. Although I think the pandemic probably made that a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. I was not the kind of person that would grab one of my colleagues from down the hall and say, well, I lost a patient today. Well, let's talk about it. You know, I, mm-hmm. I that just it wasn't in 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 me to do that. But I think perhaps the next generation of physicians are going to be better at recognizing what's going on with themselves and being able to talk to one another about it without somebody thinking they're weak, or they can't hack it or whatever. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think that I think that change is happening. It's not happening fast enough, but I think it's happening.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure if it's happening too as much like organizationally, like, in real time, I guess. But I do know that there are a lot of people privately doing that kind of in pockets, right, where they'll have coaching groups or they'll have support groups for physicians and for healthcare providers outside of their work, even just to kind of come together and talk about the struggles if they don't have that opportunity um, on the actual front lines to do so.
1: Yeah, it's been interesting since my book came out. A lot of people have reached out to me because I basically, you know, kind of bared my soul in my book, and so Yay. people people yeah. might think that I'm uh, <laughs> I, uh, interested and qualified. Uh, I, I'm interested. <laughs> I don't know if I'm qualified to help them, um, <laughs> oh, but but I've good. but but I've heard from a lot of healthcare workers over the last couple of years since the book's been out, and you know, I think I have a much better feel for what people are experiencing now, and I think people do want to talk.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I, really,
1: I really do and i think we should set up opportunities for them to do that
0: i think so too i think it would be something that would be um changing for the culture and also changing for the the workers individually and themselves for sure Right. i
1: think that's right
0: awesome so tell us where people can connect with you david if they want to reach out to you learn more about you and your work and sure. um, also buy your book
1: yeah, so my website is com. so com, and it's got access to all of what I'm up to, including the things that I write other than my book. I, I do mm-hmm. a lot of essay and opinion piece writing, and um, there's certainly ways to get my book from the website, but um, it's, it's a great way to interact w- with me, and if any of your viewers want to reach out to me directly, my email address is on the site.
0: Awesome. Did you ever think that your journal entries would become a book one day?
1: I, I, I did not. As a matter of fact, even after I started writing the book, I didn't think yeah. they would become a book. <laughs> no I, I didn't really believe it was but gonna be didn't. a book until it was on the bookshelf. <laughs> so
0: I think um, I, I think I remember you saying in, in an interview that you um you exercised as a form of uh, you know, mitigating burnout and things like that. But um definitely. Definitely. you know, you you did have the spiritual practice of writing all the time yeah yeah i really let you know I've, that yeah i've enjoyed that um yeah.
1: i started taking writing courses early on in my career um and i've always enjoyed it i still do i've got um i'm working on another book right now that's almost done so I'm, um yeah. you know I'm, I'm eager to continue that it, it it's a lot of hard work writing is hard yeah it <laughs> and, is. and um I, I i'm trying to get better at it
0: yeah and it's a practice for sure it is and, and it sounds like you've got a strong message that needs to come out again so you know it'll come out and uh you'll have to come back to share it with us next time
1: any time <laughs> i'd be happy to
0: thank you so much well thank you for being here and thank you for your time and sharing your experiences and your expertise
1: my thank you. pleasure thanks for having me jennifer